0: I hope you got a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus 20 tonight. Exodus 20, or if we've been there a couple of weeks now, we'll be spending a few more um, studying the Ten Commandments. But tonight we're going to look at verses number 8 through verse number 12, but um, what we'll do each and every week as we study the Ten Commandments, we're going to start out at the beginning and read to the point that we're going to stop. I think that'll just help us kind of follow uh, through week to week. Um, and it won't hurt to read a few verses over again. So if you've got a Bible, Exodus 20 is our text. Um, again, emphasis on verses 8 through 12. But we'll start at verse 1 just so we all are on the same page. So Exodus 20, verse number 1, God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no- for yourself a "...shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to the thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and hallowed it or made it holy honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the lord your god is giving you so we're all familiar with those i'm sure we've read them a time or two most of you can recite the ten commandments front to back maybe not all the Uh, extra stuff that comes along with each commandment, but you know them, basically, the the gist of them. Uh, But we began studying a few weeks ago um, about the Ten Commandments, and we've talked about the what, the why, and the how, what were they for, why they still matter, and how they apply to us. And we talked about how they were given under the Old Covenant, how that applies to us under the New Covenant, and and, and was it always the same application. Um, It's important important to first off know uh, that not for us nor the Jews, the Ten Commandments have never been positioned as a means for salvation. They were never given as a means to save the Jewish people. They were never given as a means to save anybody the clear and cohesive message in the Bible is that we are saved by God's grace the law reveals his holiness and his perfection while exposing our unholiness and our imperfection yet God doesn't mean the law to save he saves by another by a better way and that better way as we've established so far in our study is by his grace and we talked about how Israel was saved well before chapter 20 began. Uh, And you were reminded by verse number 2 where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. So not, I will be if you comply, not I will be if you obey, but I am the Lord your God because I've done something for you. I've already saved you. We're already in a relationship. So let me just say before we get into the nitty gritty of the law, this is not about how you are to be saved. This is how you are to behave as saved people. This is how you should respond to what you have been given. And now, we've said, uh, we've established and studied it uh, very um, thoroughly. God saved them by the power of the blood of the Passover lamb. He brought them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, sealing them off from Egypt. He brought them out by His hand and by His power. So, again, Exodus 20 begins by restating what has been established very clearly in the first 19 chapters of Exodus. Israel is already in a relationship with God, so don't let anybody ever tell you that this is somehow a gate to, to know God, a gateway to have a relationship with God. This is not that. But it is still very important. What follows, again, is not a religious gate. But our relational guardrails. Guardrails, as in the reason why guardrails exist on the highway, is to protect you from getting too close to the edge, right? To protect you from going down the embankment, down the cliff, into a place that you might not survive, right? Guardrails are for your safety, for your protection. We've learned that law wasn't given to save, but to keep safe. A relationship preceded the rules. And the rules protect the relationship. In the same way that you don't cross the yard and boss somebody else's kids around, right? You have rules for your children and your grandchildren because you love them, right? But you don't cross the yard to tell someone else's kids what they should do, right? That's their parents' responsibility. So God does not try to, to rule or instruct children that, do not, that are not His or people that do not belong to Him, but again, this belonging is not one of, super, or of superstition or superficial. This is a very relational, very personal belonging, right? Our, our belonging to God is, is very close to His heart, right? He loves and He cares for us, and that's why He gives us His Word. Now, this foreshadows and makes very clear an aspect of God that would always be true and that it is always, has always been true. God is a perfect, good, heavenly Father, He restores the relationship before he ever attempts to reframe the person. He wants you to be his more than he wants you to obey him. Of course, we should obey him, but he wants you to be his first and foremost. He cares about proximity more than he cares about performance. Performance will come when there's proximity. He wants you to be with him, right? Now, notice verse 1 and 2 clearly tell us again I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Out of bondage. So we can conclude that the overarching, the moral of the story is that the commandments don't save, but the commander does. The law doesn't save, but the lawgiver does save. And that is the good news, right? But the lawgiver prefers we call him something a little more personal. He prefers that we call him our father, which should tell us a lot about how he wants to relate to us. Um, And that, in and of itself, it frames, it reframes, helps understand how any rule or commandment applies to us. God gave the law to those he had saved to keep them from getting enslaved once again, which is the word we read in the New Testament, um, not only in reference to the Old Testament teachings, but to the New Testament teachings that, 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 that Paul and Peter and the others write to us and say we should do this because we are now in Christ. Romans 6, a passage that we referenced before, but I'll show you a few different verses. Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or brought to an end so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now listen, that does not happen by our own efforts. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to stop sinning in and of yourself. That's not something we have the ability to. To do It's not something we have the desire to do. We are sinners and we will continue to sin unless there's an intervention from somebody that cares and loves us. So the, the Scripture says that in Christ we're brought to that place of freedom and that we are brought out of slavery, out of bondage to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin... Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. So you see the, the whole motive that Paul is trying to say in Romans 6. It's not just about washing away what's old, but it's about opening up to what's new. That Christ doesn't just save us to say, You're forgiven. He saves us to deliver us and create in us a new heart that we might can be the people He always desired us to be. And we yield ourselves to Christ because Christ in Christ we can truly find life. We seek out His Word because we know that the Word instructs us and guides us into this new and righteous living. And I'll say this, if if you became a Christian... If you got saved because you were convicted that God moved in, and whether it was a service or just a, a conversation, if you became a Christian because you felt something was missing, right, and whether it was a, a beating in your heart or just a, the, the, the atmosphere that you were in, you knew that something was missing, right, something was not there, and you needed a relationship with God. If God convicted you, if God brought you to a place of salvation, that same conviction, that same interrelational dealings from God to us, that same work of the Spirit will lead us to doing the right thing. Just as it convicted us of the wrong thing, God does not somehow just leave us stranded wondering what to do next. He is very hands-on. He's very active. He's very involved in our lives, especially all the more as saved people. Uh, you know, people say, "Well, justin, you know, I, I, you know, I know I'm saved, but I haven't really felt that before, And you know, I know you talk about I should do this, and I should do that." But, you know, I don't, you know, God's not, I don't really feel that. And you're not always going to feel it. And you're not always going to, you know, recognize and notice everything that you should be doing or shouldn't be doing. But a Christian, someone who's been saved by, by God, you're not going to be allowed. And God's not going to let you just kind of get isolated and get off, you know, in a corner to where somehow you fall behind. God's going to always reach back. God's going to always reach down and catch you up and remind you, hey, you're mine. I've got better plans for you. I've got great plans for you. And He's going to always lead us along. And, and isn't it true that God has an uncanny way of getting to us whenever we maybe have, have, have thought or mistakenly thought that we've fallen behind? God has a way of opening that door, sending the right person, playing the right song, giving the right Scripture. God has the, just, the, the amazing power to always find us even when we think we are lost. He always does. So I don't worry too much when someone says, hey, I know that I'm saved, but I just, I don't, there's just, there's just something missing. I pray for people and I pray for you, but I'm not worried about your salvation because if you are truly saved, God is sovereign and God is caring and God's going to take care of those that are His. And if there is something that isn't genuine, if there wasn't salvation there, God is still caring and God is still loving and God will find you. Don't worry. Now, we yield ourselves to Christ because in Christ we can truly find life and to be saved is to have experienced this change from death to life, from sin to grace. Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So you see Paul's testimony that salvation is a transition from death to life. And the life that we now live, even if we don't recognize it at all times, we are living in the power of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. And remember, His death was for you. It was for you as in for your best. We are filled with His Spirit. Therefore, we live by His Spirit. And later on in Galatians, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, we should keep in step with the Spirit. Again, read Romans 8. Read the whole book of Galatians. You see this connection between saved and living in the Spirit of God. We keep in step by knowing and studying the Word because this is the record of the Spirit, the testimony of God to us. So we covet every word. We receive every word because there's no other way to true life. Eternal life is found in no other way than trusting in God and in God's Word. So His commandments, especially these Ten Commandments, highlight what trusting God brings to us. These commands are fresh wind and fire from God, opening our eyes, aligning our hearts, ordering our steps to maximize our new life. And just think about it this way. Obeying God is the natural extension of trusting God. That makes sense, right? That if we are to obey God, it's it's the natural extension of trusting God. So if you've trusted God, the natural next step, the natural evolution, the natural progression of trusting God is obedience to God. Now you'll have some that say, well, you know, God, it's not about legalism and you know, no, no, there's no amount of good I've got to do. And, and I hear that and I don't teach that. But trusting God is a confession that He is trustworthy, right? If we trust in God, that means we've acknowledged that He has something we don't have. He is good, as in better than us, as in best than any other option or any other way of life. And I only ask you this question. Shouldn't we want to take our relationship with God to its maximum potential? I mean, I ask you this a lot, and I know this comes up a lot in our teaching, but if there's something left on the table, I mean, would you want to miss it? The Word doesn't let us get by with passively trusting God. There's no passive trust according to the Scriptures. There's total trust or there's complete carelessness. There's no in between. If you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, the prophets and apostles, God, Jesus Himself, doesn't describe nor entertain lukewarm faith. Not because they're hateful or condescending, not because they just want to make us feel like we're not where we need to be but because God deserves all of our trust. Maybe He even demands all of our trust. But if you were God, the same would apply to you. Now we're not, right? Good news. But God is higher and above all of us. He deserves all of our trust. And maybe more importantly for you tonight, we need all of His guidance. So God's deserving and our need meet when we trust Him. Salvation itself suggests that we need more than just a little help. We need more than just a little bit of guidance here and there, right? I mean, when you become a Christian, when you get saved, you're confessing that there's a hell and there's a heaven, and you don't want to go to hell, right? But you want to go to heaven. But it's more than that, isn't it? I mean, it's more than just, hey, I want to make sure when I close my eyes for the final time that I'm not going to go somewhere bad. That salvation is, is, is confessing to God that we need an intervention in our hearts, and it's more than just our insurance for when we die. It's God's presence so that we can live. Now, I don't, you know, I don't downplay the fact that there's hell. I don't downplay the fact that we're going to die and that there's going to be an eternal place that we're going to live, heaven or hell. I, I, I think that needs to be taught on. But here's the thing. Salvation is more than just insurance. Listen, if you get the presence of God, the insurance is taken care of. If you get the presence of God so that you can truly live, we can talk about dying one day, but I'm not worried about that yet because if you're living in God's presence, that is what matters most because the rest of it will take care of itself. Now, we're going we're to learn that if we're going to trust God, why wouldn't we obey God? It's a pretty logical question to ask. If we're going to trust God, why would we not obey Him? Why wouldn't we seek to obey Him and everything? And the alternative is, a, is a, you know, important question as well. If we don't obey God, do we really trust Him? Because if we trust Him when we don't obey Him, what are we really trusting Him for? And, and how to, is there any connection and trust in trust? And if there's not a connection between trust and obedience, then something else is missing. Now, we'll talk about why there's this tension, but I really think it should just be a given. If there's no other way... If God is the only way to be saved, then His will is obviously the only way to be safe, to be well, and to be secure. Now, last time we talked about the first three commandments, and we categorized them under this no other banner. Uh, There's no other God. There's no other image. There's no other name. Tonight we're going to dive into the next two commandments, um, and I think it becomes even more personal, more practical, and we will walk away knowing there's no better way to live... We won't be able to accept any other way, honestly. But really, even though we're talking about two commandments, there's really three different commandments that we're going to talk about tonight because one of them has two sides. So as we talk about no better way to live, we're going to talk about there being no better rest, there's no better mission, and there's no better motive. All under the banner of rest and work and honor. Now, we talked about trusting which is our first mini-topic, resting, trusting in God. Uh, and, and the first commandment that we're going to talk, talk about, commandment four, is all about trusting, it's all about fostering and developing habits of trust, total dependence on God. And you all know the commandment as what it says in verse number eight, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Holy. Of course, verses 9 through 11 uh, give us a lot of information, which is really the longest explanation for any of the commandments, right? Verse 5, uh, commandment 3 um, has a little bit. Commandment 2 has a little bit. But commandment 4 has a lot of, of, of additional kind of you know, footnote information that the Scripture seems to think that we need to pay attention to. So the fourth commandment, It's twofold, so we'll talk about just the first side of things for a little bit here. Um, Now, we've done several studies on the Sabbath day as a church, um, really just a few weeks ago, Labor Day weekend. We did a a whole message on the Sabbath day, Um, and you can consult that and reference that if you want to. I'll talk about that many, many more times, I'm sure. Uh, But I want to talk about the Sabbath just briefly, as it was for the Jews and as it still is for us. Uh, In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Sabbath was a pretty big deal. Um, It was the anchor for their faith, and really their entire covenant was kind of encapsulated by what happened on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, according to the Jewish calendar. I think we often miss the true meaning of the Sabbath, um, and and the reason is because we've kind of carried this wrong understanding of it forward and we kind of we kind of only look at it in a very narrow way and i think we miss a lot that god wants to say to us about it um from this scripture and from the whole bible um, and, and here's what i mean i want to talk about what the sabbath meant based on these few verses alone and essentially the sabbath was a free pass to the jews it was a day off work with full pay and full benefits now not literally full pay and full benefits but the idea there it was as if they were getting a day off work but they were going to receive the full benefits and the full blessing as if they did the work god wanted the jews to trust him so much now hear this god ask the Jews we talked about this a few weeks ago God gave the Jews permission to put their entire dependence on him and when they didn't put all of it on him he said guys i want you to give it all to me i want you to put every ounce of weight you can on me i can handle it so no part of this commandment is somehow punitive is somehow uh, you know it's trying to make a religious habit out of some out of us This is about God wanting our best and God saying to the Jewish people, I want you to put all of your dependence on me. And here's how we're going to kind of wean you into this. Here's how we're going to train you to trust in me. And honestly, for the rest of your life, I want you, or the rest of the Old Covenant, I want you to take off every Saturday, sundown on Friday for us. That's when the Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. From 6 p.m. for us Friday evening evening to 6 p.m. for us Saturday evening. That was the Sabbath day for the Jewish people. God says, I want you to take off that entire block of time, and I want you to learn in that time to put all of your faith on me. Not that you shouldn't trust me every other day, but this is a day of learning to trust and depend on me. It was part of the legal code for the Jewish people, for Israel. It was a law, not just you know religious law. It was a civil law. It was a government enforced law. You cannot work on the Sabbath day, or you will be punished. Now that's why it became such a religious thing because they they focused more on the ceremony of not working and less on the heart of the matter, what it actually meant to not work. It became more about what people saw and less about how people actually you know, were faithful with their hearts. Now, it doesn't mean, as God is telling them to trust in Him, it's not saying that they didn't have personal responsibility. We'll get to that. But remember how God fed them six days a week in the wilderness, and this was during that time. He fed them with manna in the mornings. He brought quail in in the afternoon. He brought water out of the rock. And remember on the sixth day, he brought them a double portion, right? He said, I'm going to give you enough on, Sa- on Friday to take care of you for Saturday, and then on Sunday, it'll be a normal dose once again. God was telling the Jews, you must take a day off. Now, for us, we hear that and we think, well, you we know, man, is God telling me that if I don't, I'm somehow not a believer? That's not what he's saying. But God was telling them, I want you to not work on Saturdays. But I'm gonna make sure you get everything you could have got if you would have done all the work. See what God is doing? He's treating them with a day off, even though their tendency, even though their 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 kind of nature was to always be in control. It was always be pushing and carrying. Right? They lived in a hand-to-mouth society. No refrigerator. Right? No storage. So if you didn't grow it, if you didn't pick it, you didn't need it, right? If you didn't get it today, you didn't have it today. So for them to put their faith in God's provision was a big deal. And God says, I know your tendency, I know your nature is to always push and always be in control and always carry, but for one day, I want you to let go. For one day, I want you to drop it. For one day, I want you to stop what you're doing because you must develop a habit of trusting in me so that you can rest in me. But the Sabbath was more than just about not working. The Sabbath day, they would worship instead of work. Now, as a a way of reminding themselves, exercising their faith in God who always works and always provides. Now, over the years, they kind of got it twisted up and they viewed these laws and these, these, these commandments as if somehow they were the most important thing and people were not as important. But Jesus came along and said, guys, remember, the Sabbath was made for man. God gave these to be a blessing for you, not to somehow become a burden for you. God gave them to free you not bind you. In the same way that in Genesis 2, God rested on the seventh day because he could. What's the American dream? To retire, not because you have to, but because you can. Right Now, they didn't have the same concept of retirement and 401k and, and working so many years and getting Social Security like we do. They actually never had that. <laughs> But the idea that God rested on the seventh day was not because God had to, because God didn't get tired. He could, because the work was done. So the idea of the Sabbath is taking a day off because they could, not because they had to. Because they could, because they could breathe. I know I could be doing something, but that would make it more about me and last, about God. This is about taking God's invitation and trusting in him and resting in the freedom he has given me. Now in our world, we live in a 24/7 365 society. We don't live in ancient Israel. We don't live in a theocracy. We don't live where Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are our civil code, right? We don't live under this law, spiritually or in a physical or literal way. But I've got good news for you. The Sabbath promise is not bound to a particular day, but it is in a particular way. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. It's about taking full advantage of God's invitation to trust and depend on Him. We don't rest in a day or at a certain place. We rest in a person in Jesus' finished work. But I'll say this. God does not fault or judge anyone who has to work on Sunday. Sunday being the day that Christians celebrate the Lord and worship for the Lord. But there there are still avenues and ways to be involved in God's church even if you do live in this 365, 24-7, round-the-clock world. One, even though things may keep us away from the the worship community and God's activity that God does in His church... God does not judge anyone in those circumstances, but that's not an excuse to not be involved. That's not an excuse to avoid being involved in God's community that He saved you to be a part of. There are ways to still find your place, and God provides those ways. I I believe that absolutely. There are plenty of people who attend church and find no rest, but if you're looking for rest, the best place to find it is within the church and family of Jesus. And I say this to us because this is our temptation The church is not a platform for the arrogant religious to scorn those who miss. It's a place for the humble, saved, to celebrate and find rest and remind anyone and everyone it's not about the day or the place. It's about the person. It's about Jesus. One more thing about the Sabbath. In Israel, on the Sabbath, they would sacrifice. They would give an offer to the Lord. Now imagine this. They're not working. And on top of that, they're losing a day's worth of work and then they're also required to give up something. So not only are they leaving something on the table, they're also taking it off the table, right? You see that how that would bring some anxiety to the people? But it all went hand in hand with taking it off. So not only would they rest from work, they would sacrifice. So they were taking money off, but they were also leaving money on. But all of this was to train them, God is going to provide. And part of the offering system was to further develop this trust. Take from what God has provided and give back. Invest God's gifts back into God's community. And you know what that does? It tethers, it wires your faith even more on God. This is why the New Testament commands us, commands us, To fight against worry with generosity and sacrifice. And it's why Jesus told parables about how hoarding and withholding from God leads to greed, not plenty. Leads to greed, not plenty. Now you may say, well, I don't have much I can't give, so there's no risk of me becoming greedy. Who says we can't be greedy over a little? Who says you can't be controlled by a little? I think the moral of this Sabbath commandment is that if God says no, we must need it. And if God says give, we must be better off without it. Sabbath invites us to depend on God. Worship invites us to invest in God so that our hearts and our hopes can be tethered, can be wired, can be anchored to Him. If we want rest, we'll worship, we'll give. And part of the whole sacrificial system that Leviticus is written all about, the whole book of Leviticus is about this part of the Sabbath. True Sabbath rest always requires we sacrifice our best. Because by pouring out what God has given us, we see all the more we must depend on Him. When we've surrendered it all to God, our time, our money, our efforts, our emotions, we are refreshed and revived. We are motivated to live and to work for Him. And I think maybe the most underplayed part of the Ten Commandments is verse number 9. Six days you shall labor. Six days you shall work. Now, I'm not trying to say that if you don't work six days, you're disobeying God. We've already said, hey, we're not under this. as some sort of binding, uh, 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 justified or condemnation sort of thing. But the commandment is not just to take a day off. The commandment is to work. For them, it was six days. So as much as they were required to take a day off, they were also required to work six days. Now we Americans only work five, right? So hey, we get we 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 uh, you know we still judge people for not working not for, for working on Sunday, right? In our world, yet we don't take that part serious. See how religious we can get and how hypocritical we can get. We religious types love to enforce to take this day off, but we don't ever enforce to work six days, right? Now again, that's proof that much of this is time and place, but the message here is God is giving the Jews, that he's giving the Jews, as you depend on me for everything, work for me every day. You know what he's saying? No day is insignificant. And no job is insignificant. And he's saying that work is not a burden. Work is not a curse. Work is a blessing and work is a mission. And there's no better mission. Adam was given a job before the fall. The fall brought sweat and frustration, but it did not end the purpose of work. And of course, there's plenty of frustrations that we all face in any job, but God calls us to take advantage of every day as an opportunity to work for Him. Very few people go into work every day as if they're on mission from God, but the commandment tells us there's no better mission. There are no meaningless jobs. There are no insignificant professions. Just as God worked to create our world and worked to recreate our souls, He works to redeem all things. We are called and commissioned by Him to take every day with a purpose. We live in a world where so much is made out of certain careers. We talk about certain people being called to this and that, but every single person with every single job, whether it's just because you had to take it because it was the one that would pay the bills or one that you dreamed of and worked for and got an education to get, whatever job God has given you at any season of your life, that is a significant mission He has put you on. Don't ever doubt that you have a significance and a meaning and a purpose and a mission in your work. Because this commandment You should work. You have a purpose every single day. And of course, every season of life is different. We don't all have a job that works nine to five. We don't all have a job six days a week, but we all have a job six days a week, don't we? We all have a job seven days a week, don't we? It may look different. It may clock in here. It may clock off there. It may be paid. It may not be paid. But the purpose is still there. Colossians 3, Paul says to those in Colossae that were frustrated with their jobs, Whatever you do, work heartily. as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord. So he says to men who had a job that they hated, to women that weren't allowed to work in that season, in that world, part of the world, to children that didn't see their lives as being significant as those that were older, he says to everyone, you have a purpose, your job, your mission is important. First Peter 4, Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So whether you are someone who just talks to someone on here, here or there in any conversation, whether you're someone that labors in this field or that field, you are a steward of God's work. Verse number 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Your place is not accidental. Babysitting or answering phone calls, delivering, arguing, whatever you find yourself doing on any given day, you have a purpose, you have a place of significance. The entire idea that we are stewards of Our time, our gifts, our jobs, our wealth, everything. The Sabbath rule, the work rule is all about wiring our conscience to the truth, tethering our purpose to God, our mission. Before we go, the fifth commandment. Now, if this was a room full of children, this this part of the sermon may be a little different. But I want to bring this in a way that I think we all can relate to it and find application from it. Verse number 12 says that we should honor our father and our mother that our days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. And just to take that exactly how it's given and apply it is it completely fine. And a lot of people have seen the, the, the follow-through with honoring the parents and living a long and blessed life. But I think there's something more that God wants to say to us than just that. You know, in life we spend all of our days, we long from childhood to grow up. We long from childhood to have aspirations about freedom and independence. We want to be autonomous. We dream to be free and have nobody bossing us around and no curfews and nobody saying, you've got to do this or you've got to do that. But here's the secret nobody tells us when we're dreaming all those things as we grow up. We're dreaming of unabashed freedom and lim- limitless future. That never works out well for anybody. Try being at any point in your life a person that answers to nobody. Doesn't work out. You know what happens? You know what happens when we're autonomous? We're unaccountable, and we always become an unacceptable version of ourselves. When we are unaccountable to anybody, when we are autonomous, we always become an unacceptable version of ourselves. Now, there may be someone tonight that says, hey, I'm my own person. Nobody bosses me around. I make my own rules. I follow my own rules. Nobody is my boss. If you think that autonomy is the dream, If you think that being unaccountable is the dream, we've become an unacceptable version of ourselves. When we're not accountable to anybody, we're not stable, we're not trustworthy. And I think this is the emphasis of the fifth commandment. To remind us that we should stay humble, we should stay accountable, and stay little. The word to honor means to respect and reflect the life that we've been given. By no means am I trying to diminish the gift of our earthly parents, but I think everything points to and reflects a heavenly reality. And God, our heavenly Father, and our earthly parents remind us that we are not our own master. We did not get here on our own, and we can't save ourselves on our own. If we strive to honor those who nurture us and raise us, we will always remember or not soon forget that there is a God above all of us. Show me someone that honors their parents. Show me. I also realize that that person realizes they are not the boss and they're not in control and they didn't get here on their own. Now, of course, not every person is born to ideal circumstances. Not every person has a loving, providing mother or father. Some have neither. Some have one or the other. But the essence isn't just reciprocate what we were given. Even if you weren't raised by, even if you were raised in a home life that wasn't the best. The idea of this commandment is not just reciprocate and give respect to those that raised you well. This isn't, well, they did this for me, and I'm going to do this for them. Godly parents don't love someone just to get something back. And godly children aren't godly because they paid someone back. The idea is that whether we were raised well or not, the life we've been given, the life we've been given is not of ourselves, it's from somebody else. And if we live every day understanding that our life is a gift that our life is an opportunity, that our life is grace, our motive is always going to be to honor the giver with the gift. And in this scenario, you're the gift. And if we honor the giver with the gift, notice this commandment has an if-then caveat. Live long in the land. Now, we've covered this, but this was the end-all, be-all for the Jews. It it wasn't about the afterlife. It was about living in the land because the land was everything. The land was God's gift to His people. And to properly enjoy and live well in the land, they could not forget that it was an indeed gift from God. So I don't think the commandment is honor or else God will get you. I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. I think the commandment is honor or else you will get you. Honor those who brought you here. Honor your parents. Honor your heavenly father. Because if you live with autonomy, if you live with independence, if you live with disregard, you will get yourself in a great deal of trouble. Everybody that lives for themselves only has themselves to show For themselves when it's over God gave this warning over and over again to the Jews when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build houses full of all the good things that you did not fill we don't like when politicians say this stuff to us but we should love it when God says it to us you didn't build it you didn't fill it and you didn't dig the cisterns and the vineyards and olive plants you didn't plant But when you receive from a table that you didn't set, when you eat and you are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and gave you all this stuff. He says later on, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. Respecting Him. Honoring him. We cannot forget there is no other way. There's no better way. And I honestly think if we took these two commandments and we studied them as we've studied them tonight, we would realize there is no better way to live. As we've studied overall, there is no other God, there is no other image, there is no other name. But tonight we've learned there is no better rest, there is no better mission, and there is no better motive to find rest in God, to find purpose from God, and to honor our family, our mother, our, our father. Honor our God who has given us so richly and so graciously. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and thank you, thank you so much for these commandments that have saved so many of us from so much trouble. Father, so many tonight can confess that because they honored those that raised them, they've lived a better life. They lived a a sweeter, more blessed life because the things that they inherited from those that loved them and gave so much for them protected them and positioned them to have a life that they could not have had otherwise. Father, in the same way you have given us so much, you've provided for us in so many ways, and this lesson tonight has taught us that we ought to pause and pay tribute to you more often. The Sabbath commandment tells us we should find our rest in You. If we ever find ourselves trusting in anybody or anything else, we ought to stop short and realize, wow, my faith is in the wrong place. My trust is in the wrong place. Father, thank You that there is rest to be found in Jesus, but there also is purpose to be found in Jesus. And just as we find our rest in You, we find our purpose and our mission from You. And we go to work tomorrow and go to our communities tomorrow and we, have a, we strive for the excellence that we are made for. Lord, we also have a motive that we might would honor those that have loved us and cared for us and follow through with that and honor you to ref- respect you and to reflect the gifts you've given us to those that look. Father, thank you for these reminders. Thank you for these warnings. Thank you for being a good father that disciplines your children. That we might always live the life that you've desired and planned for us to live. Living long on this side, and living forever on the next side. We long for that day. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.